Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is called Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Very special guest today, Ms. Anna Wilding, presidential photographer for the Obama family, an entrepreneur, philanthropist, an actress, a young lady who lives the phrase Renaissance woman. Welcome to Seldom Said, Anna. Hello, Bob. How are you this morning? So far, so good. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I hope, as we said before, you are as well. Absolutely. Can we start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place? Sure. Uh, first of all, I'd just like to state I wasn't actually the in-house presidential photographer for the Obamas, um, but I was one of the very small uh, core of photographers there documenting and photographing the Obamas. Um, I was born in New Zealand, so of course that's the first question people ask me is your accent. I was born in the South Island of New Zealand. And I first came to the States when I was in my 20s, um, early 20s, actually about 20 years old. I'm an American citizen now, and I have worked in film as a director or writer or actor or producer in Australia, New Zealand, London. Uh, It's taken me to Africa, the Isle of Man, all sorts of wonderful places. And I first had a photography studio when I was about 18 or 19 in New Zealand. So uh, my work has encompassed uh, er everything to do with film and media that you could possibly imagine. You mentioned becoming an American citizen. I'm reminding of a phrase Given the eclectic background you have, uh, it would seem you put your hat down in a country and that's where you are. But there's a marvelous phrase, uh, citoyen de la monde. Do you consider yourself more or less a citizen of the world? Oh, I do. Absolutely. I, I always have. And actually, I've been in the States legally on work visas for a long, long time. And I only became a citizen fairly recently. And it was quite... A wonderful but also a challenging process because for me it was suddenly putting down roots again um, in, an, in, in another country rather than traveling and working in every country. And even though I'd been here for a long time, it was a, a very different uh, feeling actually becoming a citizen. It was kind of petrifying. It was like, oh, my gosh, I really do belong here. And it was quite a process for me who does view the whole world as a, as a global family and that we all live in, all over the world. Yeah. Coming from an English-speaking country, I would imagine the language difficulties were minimal, if anything at all. It's just a matter of accent. But have you found a, have you found a commonality in the artistic expressions you've covered and taken part in? Well, I'd just like to address your first about the English language being the same. Actually, what's really interesting in speaking to that is I had a period of time in the 90s where I was hired by major film companies or studios or independent studios to uh, go on set and travel, say, for example, to Africa, to the Isle of Man, because people, even though everyone spoke the same English, everyone was having trouble understanding what each other meant. And so productions were getting into difficulties quite often, whether it be contractual disputes or whether it be two different cultures not understanding each other. So, for example, in Africa, uh, we were filming in a lot of small villages and the producer from Zimbabwe 
had a different interpretation of how the local villages should be paid. And I was brought in to resolve some disputes on that, and I agreed with the villagers that they should be paid in a certain way. And that is a situation where everyone was speaking English. So that, even though we may all speak English from many parts of the world, we may not all have the same understanding of what English means. So I think that's a really interesting um important thing to note. And I even find a little bit of that living in America. In terms of artistic expression, I think America has been incredibly powerful creatively and artistically for a long, long, long time. And I think we all look to America and Europe and these older countries when we're in New Zealand and Australia to see what techniques are being developed and to learn our craft at an even higher higher level. I mean, I think America is kind of the big cheese in the same way that France or, or London may be um, in fashion or film or what any of these kind of um, activities. So for me, it's been a joy and a delight. I mean, I've been able to, you know, uh, deliver things technically at a far higher level in terms of film. I remember when I was doing music videos, I was able to use editing and creative techniques that far surpassed anything I would have been able to do in Australia or New Zealand. And then we take those skills and we, we take them back and we, we integrate them overseas and projects we may work on overseas and then, and then we come here. And I think one of the most beautiful things about America for me is its achievements in science and, and arts. Uh, whether you're talking about NASA or whether you're talking and, and uh, aerospace or whether you're talking about film, it's there's still an incredibly high level of achievement and technical advancement in America. And I think that's uh, in part due to a fabulous um, um, aspect of the immigration policy here, which is to bring the best and brightest over. America's been doing that for years. That is not to say, and I'm going to be very specific here, that is not to say that there are not other areas in the immigration policy that need to be developed and to be made fairer for all people. I'm just saying there is that one aspect of the American immigration policy that has been great and been particularly good to scientists and artists and people like myself who have shown talent overseas and can now really stretch our capabilities here. One might speak to the issue of artistic commonplace, but also the question of originality. I'm reminded of a quote attributed to Woody Guthrie. He once told a student that he wasn't really a composer. Everything is plagiarism. Do you feel that there is an originality in the creation of art? Or is it simply borrowing, embellishing, and papering over? For me, I do think there is originality. And I, I've struggled with this question myself. And I've struggled with it in music. And I think we had that song a few years ago, was it Happy Feet or Happy Days? And that was um, brought to the courts for plagiarism Yes. of, of another uh, set of songs. I think it might happen more in music. But I know for film and television, uh, film and photography, my work, I grew up in New Zealand, in the South Island of New Zealand. We really 
didn't have much in the way of art or photography or television. We had one television channel that ran for a few hours at the time when I was growing up. So my influences were of the world. They were of the world and the mountains and the sea and the people around me. I wasn't influenced by anything in pop culture, really. Um, And so I always look to nature or the world or the human spirit for for my work. And so Though I may have very classical images, um, I think it's born of the world that we live in rather than being directly influenced by pop culture. And when I do work, people say, oh, this reminds me of that or that. And I can absolutely see that in the work. And as I was growing up, as I got older, I became aware of more work of others. But I always go in with a a view to originality. In fact, I've called my Instagram Anna Wilding Original because – for me, my source is how I perceive the world and what is happening around me rather than having to look through magazines or watch television. I just didn't grow up with that as my background. It would seem, taking that position a step further, that there is by nature a certain fluidity to your work. Do you feel that your focus points are constantly being elaborated, changed, and restructured? I think... They are. I mean, a lot of people talk in art about the moment as at the moment. These they use these words deconstruction and reconstruction. And I, I look at my work of Obama and I go, did I consciously deconstruct President Obama as a person and then rebuild him in that second that I took that photograph? And no, I'm very much attuned to nature and I'm very much attuned to what is happening in the flow of that moment. So for me, I like to not only tell the story in the photo, I like to capture the mood and the feeling and the spirit and the humanity. Uh, Humanity is a driving force in all my work, is capturing the humanity of that particular moment, that, that feeling. And to do that, you have to be fluid and you have to be able to go and be aware of all the senses and everything that is that is around you. And maybe that is why my work is fluid. And I know uh, Woody at Omens, uh, who was the chair of USC at the University of Southern California, he was the chair of cinematography, he's likened my work to Obama classicism. He said, your work reminds me of uh, the Madonna by Raphael and Leonardo da Vinci, just the way you capture Obama. And now I see your photographs and I, I think Obama classicism. And I think it's that I'm so in touch with the moment that I have this ability to capture the moments in between. So even if Obama is giving a speech, I'm ready for that moment in between when he is being 100% his authentic, genuine self, um, catching those unguarded moments. And I, I, I think that's sort of very key to, to my to my work. Uh, my focus isn't really shifting from that. I'm very much on point to capturing the beauty or the feeling or the phraseology, so to speak, of any given given moment. You mentioned Mona Lisa. Leonardo and Michelangelo always presuppose that the viewer would understand that in their mind, they had already created the work of art. Do you feel that your mind is a camera shutter itself? Do you feel and see the picture before you take it? 
No, because it involves interreaction with the other person, but I know it is only a split second. I know I can react. I have a very low shooting ratio. A lot of photographers, you see them these days, a lot of them, they go and they take 100 frames to get one photo. I only take three or four to get the one photo. I know what photo I'm going to get subconsciously, but I don't know to the moment that I push the shutter exactly what that moment is going to be. And I know the framing. I don't need to. Most of my pictures I have framed perfectly most of the time barring any sudden movements or uh, technical camera problems, which always happen if a flash of light comes across and things like that. So I don't presuppose, but I have a very clear idea of the feelings that surrounding me in the moment that I'm taking those photographs and I know the shot I'm going to get. I'm ready to take the shot when it happens and I push that shutter right at the moment that it happens. In fact, the very first time I photographed Obama, he was disembarking from Marine One. It was a sunset. I was, of course, incredibly excited and, and so overwhelmed to be at the White House. And here was this beautiful bird, Marine One, landing in front of me, 20 feet in front of me. And usually Obama walks straight to the White House, uh, to the doors, and goes into the residence. But on this one occasion, and there was no one else there. There was one ABC television news camera and, and one person from CBS. There was no one else there. He actually came over to us, and he was standing. My first encounter with President Obama in the White House was him standing within two feet in front of me. I had a camera. I didn't have a big lens. I had no idea I was going to be witnessing Marine One landing. And I had three frames left on my, my, my camera and I had only three chances to take that shot, three or four. And I took it and, and thank goodness I got it because I do shoot with such a low shooting ratio because I'm very perceptive. perceptive. I'm, I'm watching absolutely everything that goes on in my field of view when I'm behind the camera and when I'm about to pick up the camera. Taking yeah. a picture of the President of the United States in a very informal setting would seem like something that is the fruition of a life's work. If we were to go to the beginning, is there an epiphanal moment that you remember at which point you decided that photography was going to be one of the focuses in life for you? I just always knew. I took my first camera photo. It was an old box brownie when I was eight years old. I think it was of a parachute or a balloon I'd never seen before in the sky. And I was very conscious of taking that photo, sort of consciously, subconsciously unconscious, as you are when you're a children. You're aware of what you're doing. You make note of it for later on. And then by the time I was 16 or 17, I realized without a doubt, I walked straight into the two production companies in the town. One was a very well-known still photographer, in New Zealand, and one was a production company that was doing a special with uh, Lisa Gibbons from Entertainment Tonight. I'm sure you all remember that show. And I walked in with all the cockiness as you do as a teenager, and I said, I want to produce, direct, and act and be a still photographer. And, of course, these were all men. They just laughed me out the door. They said, well, women don't direct, and what do you know about photography? And uh, – I was persistent, and then, of course, I went back a second time, and I was hired by both as an assistant. So I was lucky to have some um, a, a keen sense of mentorship and, and learning by rote on the job early on. And I did a photography course as well, and I just started photographing, and very soon I was photographing uh, for magazines and 
um, major shows and Mrs. Weld and Sir Bob Geldof when he came to New Zealand. I mean, this had all happened by the time I was 19, very, very young. Um, it was just innately in me. And also, I remember when I was five, you know, everyone else at school was drawing princesses and wanting to be the queen in the carriage when they grew up. And I was drawing a picture of the world with trees on it. And I only had one thought, and that was, I want to save the world. So by the time I was 16 or 17, I was formulating these thoughts. And I was like, well, I really want to make a difference in the world. And I was very drawn to Africa and, and South America, so I studied them. In fact, I studied the whole world. I studied, studied Native American cultures. I was interested in taking anthropology at school. So there's always been this driving humanitarian side to what I do, the human spirit, should I say. I mean, okay, I am a humanitarian. I set up a charity once, but I mean, I am driven by uh, the humanity of, of people and I think that has been um, through all my work, whether I work in film, I made a film about Buddhist monks that uh, dealt subconsciously with the topic of racism that I'd witnessed uh, towards Asian peoples. And that film did very, very well. It was a forerunner short, short, shortlisted for the Oscars one year, but um, and then I, I didn't really have the money to keep going with the campaign. So a lot of my work is driven by the human spirit and writing some of the uh, injustices in the world. But I do it in a way that's entertaining because films and photographs, I think all of it has to enlighten and entertain. I remember when I made Buddha Wild, I had these thugs, like these young football thugs watching my film. They were about 18 years old in Los Angeles. And it was, I actually had gone to the cinema that day to watch it myself. And they came out laughing. They said, yo, you're the director, aren't you? Because I was also hosting the film. I said, yes. They said, well, we used to always laugh at the monks, but now we're laughing with them because they're just like us. They're really, really funny. And they admitted that they were the kind of thugs that would have used to have beaten a monk up. But through my film and through my work, through showing that the joy uh, of the monks in, the, in that particular film, they were able to relate and realize that everyone is the same at the end of the day. We're, we're all very... Um, respond to this to the same things, and at the we may have uh, different. There's something deep in the core of us that we're all human. Well, I'd like to think so. I mean, I, I won't go on about the current presidency, but <laughs> um, I think the better side of humanity is caring for one's fellow woman and man. You're certainly speaking to the choir. I could, I could not agree more. When you mentioned uh, the Buddhist monks and one of your early films, which is marvelous, by the way, I recently had uh, a meeting with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Right. Can you share your protocol with my listening audience if indeed you were present and wished to take a picture of him, an eclectic photo that showed the inner person? What provisos would you take? What steps would you promulgate to the point of clicking that shutter? Okay, well, I won't go into access and getting access to the Dalai Lama. I did photograph him twice. Uh, it wasn't one-on-one. -on -one. There were two or three or four or five other people in the room. Again, for me, it's catching that unguarded moment. I sit and wait. <laughs> Again, I grew up with old film, 35 millimeter print film. You didn't, you had 36 photographs on your camera. So you had to make every photograph count. Unlike today where you get given a digital camera and you can shoot a hundred pictures if you want. 
I still shoot in that old school style where I've only got a limited amount of frames at my disposal. And even when I had limited amount of frames, I was so sure of what I wanted or how to get the picture, I'd really just narrow it down to one or two or three. So when I did photograph the Dalai Lama in Sydney, I had the same mindset when I was there as well. So I waited. I remember sitting in the chair and I waited and I waited and I waited with my camera down. And then I could sense a kind of aura or spirit that was slightly different to what he was saying in a particular moment. And I would start to raise my camera. And then when I felt I had that moment when he was being a hundred percent authentic and real and which he is all of those things, of course, as well. But when the spark was there, when the the sense of spirituality was there. Then I took my camera and I have three very beautiful shots of the Dalai Lama. One when he is laughing at, at me and making a joke with me with the former Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, that is, is, is quite a hilarious shot. And I have this other beautiful shot of him in motion. And you literally see his arms eight times. It's, it's quite extraordinary. I, I caught him when he was throwing his arms open wide, like welcoming the universe. And you can see the eight arms sort of coming down by his side, just the fluid from the, from, from the camera. And, you know, it's the shutter speed from a technical standpoint, the shutter speed not being, to demystify that, not being fast enough to capture those arms as they, they did a wide motion reaching for the world. But the result of that is having captured that feeling at that moment, regardless of whether I had a fast or slow shutter speed, and capturing the sense of what he was doing in that particular moment. Um, the film I made about Buddhist monks was actually about uh, Thai and Sri Lankan monks rather than the um, Tibetan monks. However, it was welcomed by the Tibetan community, by everyone. And so, yes, actually the Dalai Lama approved officially approved my film, and I have has allowed me to use his uh, likeness in the start of the film and just the video inserts at the start. Not in the film itself, but in the, you know, the pre-packaging that goes on the DVD. So I wait. I wait till I, I get that moment, that, that humanity of the moment. So I can apply that to, to street photography. I can apply it anywhere in the world. And I also look for the beauty of the shot. Uh, I am very aware. I mean, I was... I was young. I work in film. I have a keen awareness of pop culture now. I do like fashion photography, some of the Herb Ritz fashion photography. Likewise, I like Henri Cartier-Bresson and his early street photography. So I do I do like every frame to be beautiful, just like a Bertolucci film. I love my, my pictures to be beautiful. The one thing that impressed, uh, and that's rather if I was to say the one thing, because there were many about some of your work, is the fact that you were able to capture serenity, not only the laughter of spiritual souls, but the idea of serenity. Is that Stillness. a gift? Say again, please. Stillness. Stillness, yeah. indeed, yes. Is that something that you feel, as a master of your craft, something that can be taught or is it an innate gift? I think photography is an innate gift to begin with. I think anything creative is. Uh, you can teach anyone to sing. You can teach anyone to take a photograph. You can teach anyone 
to direct a film, you can teach anyone to act, but at the end of the day, that person has a unique and special gift to make them truly outstanding or their work truly special. So I believe in having that inherent innate gift, no matter what discipline. It can be a great scientist. You just have a, have, have that gift. Um, you can all go to the same university or whatever it is, but you, there'll be specific uh, people. So I believe in, in innate gifts. Uh, I'm very aware in a aware of that uh, point of stillness or serenity, um, whether consciously or unconsciously. I know I, I will be walking down the street and I'll look at a woman or a guy or whoever it is and I'll go, oh, my gosh, that person will photograph so well. Do they realize they could be a model or they could be doing this? Uh, there's a girl at my local UPS store who just has the most stunning features and yes, still and and yes, stillness. So I think that stillness comes both from the person and from the photographer who has the gift to be able to see it, witness it, and bring it out. Uh, I can't create the stillness of the Dalai Lama. That's within him. But as a good photographer, I can capture it. There so, is. Please yeah. continue. Sorry. Please continue. So I think that a lot of it is to do with the subject matter, that stillness that you talk about. However, the photographer, if they're very carefully watching, can capture a stillness. And, yes, part of that is the photographer making that ability, having that ability to help the person feel relaxed and trust in you and know that you're going to bring the best of them out. I mean, I have the view is what is the point of taking an ugly photograph? I, I don't see the point of that. I want to bring out the beauty in people. And a person can have a, a hugely crooked nose and I will still find them incredibly beautiful and find something incredibly beautiful to bring out in that person. In fact, I got a lot of my early work when I was as a teenager because of my ability to make everyone bring out the best in everyone. I, I'm looking inwards. I'm looking inside. I'm not just looking at the facial features as they're presented. I'm finding what's within those people. Dare I say it, I even took, I only photographed uh, President Trump for one day at the White House, so I had to move on. Um, and I even have a photograph of him smiling and looking a little bit kind of still, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of chaos going inside there, going on inside there, but <laughs> I tried to actually have a, have an unusual looking photograph of him <laughs> as well. Not unusual. I mean, it's it's actually a fairly good photograph of him because I could penetrate a bit further further in. But anyway, um, so photographing the Obamas was an absolute joy, a privilege, and an honor. I find them uh, uh, very inspiring, and they have such strength and and greatness inside of them. So it was a joy for me to bring that out. Uh, yes. I must look for that photo of President Trump. Oh, I don't know if I still have it up. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm photographing, I'm focusing on, on this exhibit, <laughs> this Obama exhibit coming up. 
So, yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you talk about uh, official photography, there is a, a quote attributed to a Vatican cardinal who, when approached by a portraitist who wished the Pope to sit still, said, would you ask God to pose? Have you ever done an official portrait? And is that, I, in a sense, more difficult than the kind of fluidity that you approach with your shutter and your camera? I have never been asked to do an official portrait. I was never asked to do the official portraits of the Obama, of the Obamas. Uh, that was done before I was, I mean, that was done 10 or 10 years ago, their official portrait, I think. I've never been asked to do an official portrait, and it would be very interesting to see what I came out with, depending on who it was, um, especially a, a political figure, because I am going to cast them in a light where I am reaching inside. And a political photograph, like an official portrait, whether it's royalty or a sports person or whatever it was, they tend to bring with them all the mana of what that job is that they're there for, right? And I am someone who wants to strip all that away or deconstruct all of that and just get to who the person is, regardless of what they are doing, whether they're a president or whether they're a Queen Elizabeth or whether it's a, a sports figure, you know? So that would be a very interesting, it would actually be a challenge for me to do an official portrait, I would think. Actually, I, I think I don't shoot um, maybe in a hard enough way to do that. I, I have a bit of a deeper focus. So, yeah, I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rather honest response. I yes, have seen you. Very. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I, I, I think I just denied myself a lot of work there. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me qualify that. If anyone's listening, and they have a contract uh, that you wish Anna to sign. Be open-minded. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, is there then a special photo in your panoply of background work that you simply go back to that you're expressly proud of? It's so hard. I, I you know, I'm lining up for this uh, Celebrate Hope, President Obama and First Lady, former First Lady Michelle Obama exhibit. And I actually went back through my photos a couple of days ago just to make sure and finding that one. It's so hard. There are so many that I am proud of and that are so beautiful that it, it's very hard. And I go back through my pantheon of work. Uh, you know, I'm always going to be proud of my film Buddha Wild. I actually did uh, shoot that as well. I think it, the film's about loving kindness, but it's a very entertaining film it's been enjoyed by many all over the world from all sorts of backgrounds and I put something really good and positive and powerful into the world and I think all my work I want to be able to step back at the end of the day and be proud of it I'm proud of my work that I did at the White House I'm proud of the work I did of the Obamas when I started shooting the former first lady Michelle Obama uh, there was a lot of racism, as we know, swirling around that presidency. There was a lot going on on the internet, on chat boards. There was some incredibly deeply hurtful and harmful and disgusting comments being made about uh, Michelle Obama. And I worked very hard 
to make sure I brought her out in the best light possible. And I made sure those photographs got out. And I remember getting emails saying, you know, thank you, because the rhetoric was so... I mean, we have Melania Trump complaining at the time. I am the most bullied person in the world. Well, no, Melania, I'm sorry. I mean, to the rhetoric that was going around Michelle Obama, and I don't want to compare the two, they're completely different, but it was absolutely horrendous. So I am proud of being able to bring to light this this beautiful woman. And I, I think I did make even just a small difference at the end, uh, those last few years of the presidency. And I hope I hope, you know, I, I hope that's the case. I know I got emails saying that, so, and I, and I really do think I helped. I am, you see a lot of actors or directors go out and make all these horror films and things. I just can't. I mean, I want to bring stuff into the world, with whatever medium I'm doing it through, whether it's film or photography or it could be stage, whatever it is. I want to bring work that's powerful, lasting, and makes a difference, a positive difference to people's lives and how they view the world. I don't see any point in, in doing any kind of regressive or negative work or bringing anything horrible or into, into the world. I think it has to, for me, it has to be positive. I have to be proud of it I, to, to do my work. So I, I look back, I mean, I look back even at the early photographs I did in New Zealand growing up. Um, I, I'm proud of all of that. I mean, I was photographing, making points to photograph a Maori model and getting her attention so she could go and do a modeling career. Uh, I was highlighting some of the great music that was coming out that wasn't being heard, that ended up being heard. So I, I, I like to put forward a positive foot for whatever it is I'm, I'm, I'm doing. Yeah. Yes. Otherwise, what's the point? If you're not making positive difference, I, I really don't see the point for me. I'm, yeah. I mean, even if I, I – I, I, I've always had the notion a lot of people have pr approached me since I was a teenager actually saying, well, you should run for government, you should, you know, run to be a leader or something. Um, and I would consider that in America I actually can't because with citizenship laws you have to wait for seven years or something, so I can't do it yet. And even then I would just be very mindful and thoughtful about what I was doing, why I was doing it, and, and, and what what uh, policies you were bringing in. Are you you're describing all of this background and your desire to bring beauty to the eye of the beholder. Can you discuss then the premise behind the perfect exposure gallery, what you hope to show, how you set it up, how it's been promulgated well, over the years? Well, I don't own perfect exposure gallery. That was set up by some uh, hardcore uh, photojournalists several years ago, and it's now run by a um, photojournalist called Amando. And the premise of the uh, the Perfect Exposure Gallery, which is world-renowned, um, is to bring and showcase the work of extraordinary photographers in the photojournalism or realism world. Um, in other words, they, they're not going to do uh, fashion photography at their galleries. They're, they're highlighting and showcasing the best the world has to offer in photojournalism um, or street photography or things like that. And they want to make it available to the public and they want to make the public aware of it. Um, my exhibit is not just designed for the Perfect Exposure Gallery. I have another, I'm hoping it tours around the United States. I have another 
show lined up in Los Angeles opening June the 8th as well, a summer show at a different, uh, at a fine art gallery uh, in Palace Verdes. My work um, in terms of the Obamas is a little bit different from just hardcore news journalism because it does come with me behind the lens in the sense that I am looking at uh, the humanity of the photos and everything as well. And, of course, when I'm photographing Michelle Obama, I have one eye on uh, fashion photography as well. I have a very iconic uh, photograph of Michelle Obama walking her two Portuguese water dolls, dogs that are a throwback to a Vogue magazine um, sketches and covers that Vogue used to do in the 1930s of you know, society ladies walking their little poodles or their big dogs in pairs. So I have a very iconic photograph of Michelle Obama, which is a direct throwback to, to high-end fashion sketches in the 1930s. Um, so my exhibit is a, a bit of a culmination of everything, but usually the perfect exposure would, would focus on very hardcore um photojournalism say for example they have shots from war zones and things like that as well so yeah um they have they the, yeah they they run the gamut so I, I i yeah so it's it's definitely got its place the perfect exposure gallery and, and the lexicon of photography around the world in your so I'm on it. Uh, so I'm great. I'm very happy to be showing there. It's a small gallery. The showing in, in June is going into a big multi-million dollar art gallery, which is absolutely stunning. And this is, you know, more the downtown, edgy Los Angeles, you know, photo gallery. Yeah. Your program and celebration of hope, Obama Celebrate Hope, mm -hmm. which is going to share your own photographic genius with the population at large. When you speak of Michelle Obama, I shall be honest, I don't often say things like this over the microphone, but it does touch a nerve in that I have never, in all of my years, encountered some of the things she had to deal with, the things that mm -hmm. were said, the things that were done, and the premise upon which people built a relationship with a person they'd never met. Mm -hmm. Can you describe a number of significant moments without violating any privacies? I certainly don't want that. Can you describe your meetings with her and the rapport that developed some experiences that you, in point of fact, treasure? I, I treasure everything about um, Mrs. Obama, uh, the former first lady. As I said before, when I came in, I think there was the uh, most vile rhetoric uh, and racist comments being hurled at her and about her by people who had never met her. Uh, I am so much in adoration. I mean, I admire her. She was so incredibly, such a strong, iconic, beautiful woman. For me, what was most important was capturing that beauty. I mean, some photographers would take photos that would not picture her as who she truly was. I mean, there was a thing going out, oh, she, she has masculine arms. No, she doesn't. The woman is tiny. She's absolutely tiny up top. She has the most beautifully shaped arms you could possibly imagine. So there was this sort of constant, because you are working in that media realm, right? So if there's a photographer taking a bad shot, I'm, I'm working twice as hard to make the shots absolutely flawlessly beautiful in, in, in an iconic way, which was not hard to do because she is 
iconically beautiful and strong and handsome. Some of the most touching moments for me is Mrs. Obama loved that kitchen garden that she built at the White House. And so I very much enjoyed photographing her in the garden with the children. Uh, she, she absolutely loves the children. She loves the garden. It always struck me. I grew up in New Zealand. In New Zealand, it's not a hard step to build a garden, right? I mean, everyone has land and everyone, if they can, will grow their own fruit and vegetables or have a tomato plant in their garden. Michelle Obama came from the wrong side of the tracks in Chicago, right? They didn't just have gardens and, and this knowledge of gardening, I don't think, in the way that we did growing up in a farming community in New Zealand. I may not be correct about that, but what I do know is regardless, Mrs. Obama went and built a garden in the White House grounds that then made food for their own for their own kitchen, but also gave it out to the greater community. And through that garden, she would invite hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of school children and every year from all over and teach them and show them how things grew and, and how important the cycle of, of gardening was and nurturing something. And I think this is one initiative that got some attention and some press, but not as much as it probably should have. And I know that when her time there was coming to a close, she was very concerned. She actually publicly said it one day um, in the garden. She was very concerned that this tradition of hers that she had built her legacy would not be continued, that the White House Kitchen Garden would not be continued. And I am thankful that at least uh, the current First Lady has not eradicated that garden but has actually kept it going, uh, maybe with a different kind of energy and spirit, but it hasn't been destroyed. And I think that is really, really important. And in the same way, the Rose Garden has been there for, for generations and a long, long time. So hopefully the kitchen garden will keep going because I think it is a, a wonderful testament to the legacy of Mrs. Obama. Uh, yeah. So it's it's a matter of writing the rhetoric where, wherever I could uh, through my work. And I, I believe I did make a little bit of a difference. I, I received emails to say so. So, yeah. So... When you talk about feminine beauty, which Mrs. Obama obviously exudes, mm -hmm. how does that lend itself to your work in abstracts and things like the Me Too movement? When we talk about beauty, we have this preconceived notion in this country, which is prejudicial in its own right. How did you express the intensity of your feelings in being part of the movement and lending your support to it? Right. Well, this, this was a very interesting, because obviously growing up in the film industry in Los Angeles from the age of about 20, I was very, very aware of the casting couch. I had suffered at the hands of it a, a gazillion times. I was one of the very few women that said no. I had a reputation for saying no. And uh, so I would often not get cast because men would know in advance they could not get anywhere with me. So I know that I lost major contracts I have specific instances of having lost major contracts because I would not comply with the casting couch. And I am going to say this on air, but it is a sad, sad endemic of our time and of the film industry that a lot of the women that you see earning big contracts on these movies did do the casting couch. And I don't, 
I, I'm not going to mince words on that ever because that is how society is at the moment. And there are millions, well, not millions, but there are hundreds of extremely talented women who could easily be the next one, or myself included, who could easily be doing those big contracts had we said yes to the casting couch, but we did not. So I come in with a lot of uh, knowledge and uh, a little bit of anger about that society we find ourselves in, and I do think it happens across the board. So a pivotal moment for me at the White House, actually, was when the man himself, Harvey Weinstein, turned up with Michelle Obama at an event they were doing with featuring one of his Broadway shows. And I was there with my camera, of course, and my entire body inside of me was screaming, absolutely screaming. And I was just saying to myself, no, Michelle, no, don't, Michelle, don't, Michelle, don't, Michelle. And I can't remember, I think it was either before or after I went directly to her staff. I think I may have even gone to the West Wing staff. And I said, what is Michelle doing? This is... Uh, not necessarily um, – this is hypocritical what she's doing to be associated with, with Harvey Weinstein, of all people. Uh, I had a very guttural reaction to it. But, of course, I had to take photographs as well. So I did not photograph Mr. Weinstein on that day. There was no way I was going to photograph Mr. Weinstein. But I have the most beautiful shots of Michelle and of the children performing in that show on that day uh, that did uh, publish – worldwide and I think I wrote I can't remember if I actually ended up including it in the actual published article about the hypocrisy of Mr Weinstein being there but I know when the New York Times article came out and I think I was in New York at the time so the very next day I picked up the phone I did an interview with uh, Rita Corosby I think it was an ABC affiliate at the time and possibly a Fox affiliate um and we did quite a stunning 10-minute interview about Harvey Weinstein and my experience of him. And I did it because I wanted to support those women um, uh, because I knew that they would not be believed. And having said that, I'm going to be very clear here. I have been on the receiving end of some of these women and men. And they – so I said even in Rita Cosby's interview, I said – Half these cases are not going to be true and half will be true. Um, and I still hold true to that belief. And I hold the truth to that belief because when I was in, in Hollywood, people would think I was a male producer and I would used to get emails saying, oh, Mr. Wilding, I shall do anything, anything you want at all if you give me this role. So there are women out there who will do anything for a role. There absolutely are. And Mr. Weinstein's defense is actually correct in saying that. However, that does not excuse all the other women who did say no that he took advantage of or put in very frightening or scary positions. So I am a person in the Me Too. I'm not going to run around being making all the political statements. I'm happy to talk about Pete, what has happened to me and my experience of it. Uh, but, again, I, I show it through my work. I, I did interviews at a crucial time in that moment, and I didn't photograph Mr. Weinstein at the White House. I turned my lens solely onto the children and Mrs. Obama uh, at that moment. And I 
I will not propagate or support uh, men who behave in such a way and I, I might be quiet or it seems I'm silent, but I'm not picking up the photo, the, my camera for those men. Um, yeah. Well said. I do want to go into a measure of detail about your new showing, Obama Celebrate Hope, but I must find myself asking one final question and a short cursory answer, if you would. Mm -hmm. Shirley Chisholm, African-American, female, elected to the House of Representatives, she was once asked by a fellow rep, what is more difficult in the public eye, being a woman or being an African-American? And she said, no question, being a woman. Do you agree? Well, I'm not an African-American woman, so it's hard for me to to draw a, a conclusion on that particular sort of distinction. It is really hard being a woman. I think it's really hard being a smart woman. I think it's excruciatingly hard being a smart, intelligent woman. If you're a woman who is not as smart or intelligent, just like there are smart men or not so smart, smart men, right? Um, things will not grate on you as much. But when you're a, an incredibly smart or intelligent woman who has the capability to run a company or run a division or become a president or 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 anything, when you have that case capability, it's a very, very hard thing to be a woman because you will be knocked back. And I had a, a very defining moment in my 20s where I realized I, I had, had this epiphany and I'm surprised it took so long, but I was like, because I've always been a bit of a tomboy, right? And I was like, oh, my God, I'm a girl. That's why I'm not getting promoted to president of that company, or that's why I'm not being offered that to direct. I'm a girl. And I realized that being a girl, being a female, being a woman, still to this day, it, 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 it's hard. I, someone said to me, uh, even last night or the night before, the gallery I'm showing in, and they said, I believe this is the first, you're the first woman they've ever shown in this gallery in a, show, in, in a solo show. Um, I know that I've even had to fight a little bit for Mrs. Obama's portraits to go in there, you know, for Mrs. Obama's photos to go in. They've taken one or two, but I had to fight to get an extra two or three photos of Mrs. Obama in there. There's just a inherent sexism that happens in the world. I don't even know that men are aware they're doing it. Sometimes you sometimes have to pull a guy aside and say, hey, this is not just about the boys. Do you realize you're doing this? And I know with this gallery owner, I said, hey, I'm also looking through this lens as a woman, right? And just to make him aware that it, Mrs. Obama needs to be in the show as well, equally. So it, it, it works, all, it happens all the time. And um, I, it happens as a director. It's still very hard as a female director. I th I'm, I'm overjoyed with the amount of women that are, are running for government. And like anyone, they're either going to be the best or not the best or whatever it is. But just the fact that they're there and showing up and can show up, I think, is absolutely fantastic and really, really, really important. And it's been interesting, that question, because I've had a lot of African-American male friends of mine in, in the film business. And, yeah, I, I, it's, yeah it's an interesting, interesting. It, it's tough. It is tough being a woman. And I think some women 
are not as assertive and, and don't realize quite the interplay that's going on when you reach um, certain levels of business or your profession, uh, what's going on. Um, I mean, it's perfectly acceptable. You go, you go into a hairdresser, you're going to see 10 female hairdressers in there, right? And 10 male or five male, whatever it is. But then other professions aren't like that. And I, I actually think that's one of the issues we've got with, um, you know, the support. They say that Trump had support from a lot of women in the Midwest. And I actually think that is to do with conditioning. They have been conditioned and actually haven't experienced what it is to be like to be sexually harassed, which most women in New York and L.A. and the big cities have experienced if they're out and about in the workforce and or working in uh, professions that require looks or anything like that. I mean, I, th I think there's women who haven't experienced harassment to the degree that other women have experienced harassment, and I think that is actually one of the, the uh, divisions in those who voted for Trump, uh, those who have experienced it, and women who actually haven't experienced harassment on a daily basis. Maybe they do work as hairdressers or they, they work as housewives and they haven't been out in the world workforce in, in specific areas and realize how bad it is. You know, um, it, it's, it's still, I think it's getting better. I think it's absolutely, I know in the film business, I can look at this current crop of young actors, most of them and say, well, they haven't done the casting couch or they haven't had to, or they haven't been in a position where they've had to, um, do it so yeah. if i may ask then using that marvelous title obama celebrate hope mm -hmm. would you describe the showing but direct your description to that young woman in my listening audience who's thinking about experiencing it and also thinking about following similar footsteps to your own I would hope that this exhibition is inspirational on a lot of levels. And I think I've been really overjoyed where I've seen people have come to me and young women uh, say, oh, I really want to come because I really want to be a photographer. And that's amazing that you photograph the president and the first lady and I want to come. And those steps are possible. I did it. And I did it in a much tougher and harder generation for women. And it takes hard work and diligence and just a, a belief in what you're doing is the right thing for you to do. And I hope, I obviously, I, I called the exhibition Celebrate Hope, um, primarily, obviously, so that we could look back at the dignity at which the office of the Oval Office should should be held, the dignity and respect. And I was also able to draw the conclusion that I believe that the hope uh, Obama brought to the start of his presidency is really manifesting itself now because I see people look at my photographs and sometimes they cry um, and they miss him. They miss that time when there was dignity and hope and in the office, the sense of doing what was right for the well-being of people and, and the country. Even if he struggled with getting some policies through, the fact is the ideology was there and it was correct and it was right and it was, it was pure. So I think that Celebrate Hope was the most apt title of the show that I could come up with, but it is also 
totally apt to be inspirational to all these young people and in particular young women coming through that women can do this. And it is going to be a bit of a harder fight. I mean, when I first went to the White House, you know, there's two or three photographers there, mainly male, who are in that core group. Um, and they are they they all had the same reaction to me. It was like, who is this woman? Who is she shooting for? Like, whether it was the French photographer or the British photographer or the American Getty photographer, there was a complete, like, they may as well all stood with their arms folded and just gone, who are you? Who are you? You're just a woman. I mean, that was the attitude. And uh, I gradually, the Getty photographer understood that I wasn't stepping on his particular turf that I had my own <laughs> agency at the time and was working freelance. And, um, but it's still incredibly male dominated. I mean, they would literally try to bully me out of the way sometimes at, at some of the more public events like the Easter egg roll, I'd have to really fight for my position. But what has been blessed to me is that I actually had, uh, well, silver lining to a bad situation. I had a, a horrible accident, a slip and fall years ago, and I really damaged my shoulder, which means it's really hard for me to pick up really, really heavy lenses now. So what that allows me is I have to even be smarter and cleverer about how I take my shot. So when they're lining up and trying to not let me get in on a more public event, I'll just squeeze my way through and find find my way and find my position and, and find the shot that I need to take to do what I have to do. And I don't need a big lens. I mean, these guys, they, they love to walk around with big 100-foot lenses, right? Oh, you know, I'm a photographer. See my big lens. I mean, I don't need to say more, <laughs> more than that. And I could just walk in with a little camera or a smaller lens and, and take a photograph that – that was just as beautiful. Well, actually, more stronger would, than what they could take. Yeah. I would love to continue this for <laughs> a year and a day. Uh, you're a bottomless <laughs> pit of anecdotes and stories and experiences, but I would like to let the listening audience know the details of the showing. Obama sure. celebrate hope. Can you tell people out there how they might experience it, or if indeed you have plans to tour? Okay, we absolutely uh, hope to tour. I hope that any museums or galleries listening, uh, they are welcome to contact me to book a tour. In the meantime, we have booked two shows. Uh, it's showing on February the 17th. It opens with a VIP reception in Los Angeles at the Perfect Exposure Gallery, which is between downtown Los Angeles and South Pasadena, a very beautiful part of the city, South Pasadena. And that runs for a month. February the 17th to March the 17th. And then we open again on the Palace Verdes Peninsula at an incredible, beautiful little art, well, big art museum gallery they have up there at the top of the hill. And that serves all the South Bays from Malibu down to Orange County and San Diego. And that opens June the 8th to July the 7th. So they're the two uh, showings, month-long. So two months is we'll be showing for two months in Los Angeles at both those two venues, which should cover most of the city. And then we hope to tour sh to Chicago or D.C. Uh, I've got interest in Australia as well. So we shall see uh, where it ends up going. But I hope it tours through much of the country. Final thought. And I'm always loath in a good program to say final thought, but I'm hoping you'll be back again. Oh, thank you. I'd be honored. I'd love to. My pleasure. And that thank of my you. audience. I would wonder if you could click your heels, make a wish, look at the stars. 
What haven't you done yet that you plan definitively to do? Right. <laughs> That's a big question. When you come out of the White House, it doesn't matter what you've been in there, you're kind of glad to leave and it would, you kind of go, well, I don't want to be president. <laughs> it's quite a job. It's not exactly a pleasant job. <laughs> and I can't be. Um, I, I still would like to do one great film as an actor. I would still like to find that, that one role and a great agent that I could do that great film um, as an actor. I'd still like to do another film as a director. I would still like to run for Senate or Congress at some point down the track, maybe. Um, well, and that's just a, a, a thought that's formed because I now am an American citizen, so I wouldn't be running in any other country. Uh, I've set up a charity. I set up a charity. My hometown was destroyed by earthquakes, so I'm not looking to set up a charity again. I recently closed that one. It did well. It helped a lot of people. So I've kind of um, uh, had my experience of philanthropy, and maybe I'll do something else philanthropic uh, down the track, but I'm not looking to set up a charity right immediately, having just done that. Uh, so I think for me, I, I'm really looking to do some more creative work. Um, I've, I've spent a lot of the, my hometown was destroyed by, by earthquakes. So I spent a, a lot of time dealing with that and helping without that, with that. And then I had, um, yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I, a film and maybe possibly run for Congress or Senate in, in the future, and a lot more travel. I haven't done a lot of travel recently, um, and I would like to do a lot more travel, and I would like to tour with this show. I, I really would like to tour all over the world with this show. And I think, diplomatically speaking, I think something needs to be out there to offer a counter view or a counterbalance, a counterpoint to what's going on in the country right now. I would like to end the shutdown. I would like to have the way to end this shutdown right now because it's affecting so many people and it's affecting people I know. Uh, so, Anna, I think you've already intruded on our second interview. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm already <laughs> <laughs> mentally planning. I will bring it to a close, but I'd love to have you stay online for a moment for a private exchange. Absolutely. The program has been seldom said. Special guest has been Anna Wilding, someone who we are grateful for having passed our way. Till next time. Thank you.